I told you a couple of weeks ago that the thematic verse or verses for the whole book is Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. And the conclusion comes in verse 2, and the driving question comes in verse 3. That's just the way the preacher chose to write this. The question is, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So gain is a term only found in the Old Testament here in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just a business term. It could mean profit or advantage. What accrues to you? What do you benefit? How do you come out ahead? We talked about the word toil. It shows up over and over and over again in Ecclesiastes. And it doesn't only refer to your career. It also refers to anything that you do in life. All of life's activities and responsibilities. That's your toil. We've talked about this phrase, under the sun, it's less about a place and more about a time. So we read from Genesis 1, God created the lights and the sun and the moon and the stars, and He created them to mark seasons and to mark time. So when we talk about life under the sun, what we're really saying is, once you show up in this world, you're on the clock. You're under the sun. And there's a countdown. God has set the story of your life. And we're headed towards the day that you die. Life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's here and then it's gone. And that's the meaning of verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Literally, smoke, smoke, it's all smoke. Mist, mist, we're just a mist. Vapor, vapor, we are just a vapor. We're here and then we're gone. So we're talking about time in this book, our time under the sun. So our passage tonight is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 to 22, the whole chapter. I'll start with a quote from Dwayne Garrett, my old Old Testament professor from Southern Seminary. He says, this text is a masterpiece of wisdom poetry. And really what he's talking about is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 2 to 8. One commentator that I read this week, not uh, Dr. Garrett, said that this is the most famous passage in Ecclesiastes. Another commentator said this is the most preached on passage in Ecclesiastes. And I would add it's the most sung passage passage in Ecclesiastes, ideas and concepts that you find here in chapter 3. The word time shows up in our passage 28 times, 28 times. It might be an important word, 28 times. Repetition tells you something, especially in poetry. The key verse, if you like to circle verses, we're going to build towards this, is Ecclesiastes 3.14. That's the center of the whole passage, the center of the whole chapter. So here's the big idea as we jump in. God is sovereign over time. He's the creator of time. He rules over time. He is eternal. He's not bound by time. We are under the sun. Our lives are a mist, a vapor. God does not have that experience. He is sovereign over time, and God's people should stand in awe 
of God. When you understand who he is, and tonight we're honing in on one little part of God's character, the fact that he is sovereign over time. When you understand that, you should stand in awe of him. This is why we're just saying, how great thou art. You should stand in awe of God. Now, before we read, let's just acknowledge people on the earth don't stand in awe of God. They don't. People on the earth, many of them don't believe that there is a God. Or they believe that there are many gods and they're just sort of all equal. Many people on the earth are angry at God. They don't stand in awe of Him, but they are angry at Him and they hold Him in contempt for something that has happened or something that has not happened in their life. That is not standing in awe of God. Many people, are you ready for this one? Many people in this world who sit in church services on Sunday morning or gasp church services on a Wednesday night do not stand in awe of God. They only want to use God for their own purposes. They approach God as if He exists only to do what they want Him to do in their life. And if He doesn't do that, they revert back to the previous category I just talked about. They hold Him in contempt and they're angry with Him and they're bitter towards Him because of what He has done or He has not done. The wisdom of this passage says that God is sovereign over time and we ought to stand in awe of Him. So let's read the first eight verses. Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Let's start with this observation. The preacher frames this poem not under the sun, but under heaven. Remember, the, the driving question of the book is, what does man gain for all of his toil under the sun. Here, he uses a slightly different phrase, and I think it's intentional, and I think he's going to revert back to under the sun later in chapter 3, but right here the question is, for everything there is a season, and there is a time for every matter under heaven. And I think that by bringing in heaven instead of under the sun, the preacher intends for us to factor God into what we're about to read. 
about there's a time for all of these things. Heaven has something to do with all of these times. And as we get past the poem in just a little while, that becomes even more clear how heaven, that is how God, relates to us in this issue of time. So the poem starts in verse 2, and it runs to verse 8, and it contains 28 statements about time. 14 of them are positive, and 14 of them are negative. 28 statements, 14 positive, 14 negative. There's a lot of ways you can sort this out in thinking about the importance of the numbers here. I just want to begin to think with you about clues, literary clues, poetic clues that help us understand how we ought to think about this poem. The number 28, which is 7 times 4. If you've been with us in Revelation, you know that 7 in the Jewish mind is a complete number. You also know that 4 in the Jewish mind is a complete number. So you have 7 times 4 is 28. That's a very complete number. And the use of merism indicate that the preacher is writing about the totality of life. So we're not going to get super specific on all these different times. Most of them are pretty obvious. Some of them are a little bit more obscure. We're just going to focus on the big picture because in giving us uh, seven fours or four sevens, this double 14, he's describing the entirety of human life and existence. And the poetic device where he talks about being born and dying is a merism. And it really includes everything in between you being born and dying. It doesn't just include being born and dying. It includes everything in the middle of that. So we use this uh, poetic device all the time when we're talking. And we understand what it means intuitively. Let me give you an example. The Dallas Cowboys this week are searching high and low for somebody who can make a field goal. You understand what that expression means. I looked high and low. Well, it doesn't mean you only looked high and then you looked low and you didn't look in the middle. It means I looked everywhere. Okay, that's what the, the phrase, the idiom, the merism, the poetic device means. And the preacher is using that to great effect to describe the totality of life. There is a time for everything that we experience in our lives. Clue number two. Most of the examples in this poem emphasize our connectedness to other people. God created human beings to be relational. And this idea that we're created to relate to other people, to be connected to other people, is closely connected to how we experience time. If I asked you to think about the time in your life when you were growing up, there would be a certain group of people that came to your mind. Mom, dad, brother, siblings, maybe grandma, maybe grandpa. You would think about a certain group of people. If I asked you to talk about your high school days, you would think about your high school friends. Maybe you would think about high school teachers, people that you're connected to. If I said, tell me about your time in college or your time when you lived out of Odessa or whatever time, the time when you were working, your career, your mind would go towards people human beings that you were connected to. And many of these things listed in verse 2 down to verse 8 have something to do with our relationships with other people. So it's just an important thing to note as we try to make sense of this. You've heard the meme or you've seen the meme 
the more I'm around people, the more I understand why Noah took mostly animals on the ark. <laughs> but you also understand that God created humans to relate with other humans, to be connected. That's an important idea in Ecclesiastes. It's an important idea as we're talking on Sunday mornings about the church. What is the church? God doesn't call Christians just to exist as lone ranger individuals all by themselves on an island. He calls us into a community of people, a family we call church. So he's talking about relationships, connectedness. Clue number three. The extremes in each pair remind us of the certainty of change in our lives. The certainty of change. The one constant, you've heard it said, is change. That's true in life. Change is a certainty. How many of you, I'm just going to ask you to be bold and raise your hand, have been to a bird's concert? Somebody in here has been to a bird's concert. Anybody? Nobody's going to fess up to it? Somebody's been. You just don't want to be the one person to raise your hand. The birds. They wrote a song, and I use the word wrote lightly, called Turn, Turn, Turn. All they did is they took Ecclesiastes 3, 2 to 8, word for word, rearranged a few lines, but word for word, and then they came up with this creative addition. Turn, turn, turn. Change, change, change. Just when you think you're going this way, nope, now we're going this way. Just when you think this is going well in your life, nope, now it's not going well. Just when you think you've got all your health issues figured out, nope, I don't have them figured out. Just when you think you know what it's like to be a parent, nope, I have no idea what it's like to be a parent. Everything's changing, constantly changing. Turn, 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 change, change, change. This is really important. This is your pastor. This is not just your teacher. This is your pastor telling you this is important for you to know. That change in life is constant. Because when I talk with people who are dealing with change, I tend to see one of two reactions. One reaction thinks this is happening to me because God is angry with me. One of the things in this list. This is happening because God's angry with me. And he's punishing me. But on the other side, some people experience the other things on the list, and they say, God is rewarding me. He's blessing me because I've been faithful, and he's paying me back. We had a deal. He's holding up his, I held up my end of the deal. He's holding up his end of the deal. And as a pastor, sometimes I just step back and say, you know what? Believe it or not, I don't think this has anything to do with you. I just think it's life and change. And I think when you and I put ourselves at the center and we play the victim and we say that God's angry and he's punishing me or we put ourselves at the center and we say I'm the best God's rewarding we rewarding me, we put ourselves at the center where we don't belong to be. It's not always about us. Change is just part of life. Clue number 4. The vagueness of time, the word time reminds us that these seasons could be long or short. So when you look at this list, 
I'll just be honest. Some of these things could be the majority of your life. Depending on where you live, when you live, the circumstances into which you're born, things that you have absolutely no control over. Some of these things could be the dominant driving story of your life. And some of these things, good things or bad things, could be present in your life only in fleeting glimpses. So when we say there's a time for this and a time for that, we're not saying 50% this, 50% that. We're saying this is the broad scope of what you're going to experience. It's going to be in between this and this, and who knows how long here or there or in the middle or in between. It's a vague term, and it's used to great effect here. Clue number five, the lack of discernible pattern or direction reminds us that we are not in control. Specifically, I wish I would have added, in control of life. When you look at this list, I looked at all kinds of commentaries this week trying to figure out why are these terms in this order in this poem? You know what I found out? Nobody has a clue. There's no discernible pattern, order. This guy thinks it's that. This guy thinks it's that. This guy thinks there's... I mean, no one knows. It's, it's just there. And I don't know if you've noticed, but that's kind of how life works. Sometimes there's not a discernible pattern to why one thing happens after the next and the other. We're not in control. There's a song that I'm going to reference here in just a minute called California Dreamin'. The Mamas and the Papas. Here's the lyrics. All the leaves are brown. I'm not going to sing it, but in your head you're singing it. All the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. I've been for a walk on a winter's day. I'd be safe and warm if I was in L.A. Yeah, we laugh in Texas. Yeah, safe in L.A., right? Yeah. You understand the point of the song, though. The mamas and the papas are somewhere where there's winter, and it's cold, and it's windy. We had that today. I don't know about real cold, but Odessa cold. Cold and windy, leaves. We have a few leaves in Odessa. They're blowing here and there. They're brown. They're dead. And the idea is all of this coldness and wind and bitterness and the crunchy leaves, it's just reminding me of death. And I just want to go somewhere where I don't have all those reminders. If I could just go somewhere where it's always sunny, weather's wonderful, everything's pretty, ah, that would be nice. But you're not in control of your life. And the preacher reminds you right here in verse 2, the very first punch out of the gate, there is a time to be born and a time to die. And that's true for people who live in Odessa and Saskatchewan and Siberia and L.A. That's life. Clue number six. The consistent repetition of the word time reminds us that time doesn't stop. Does not stop. I've joked before in other sermons that when human beings write songs, we're not very creative. We tend to write songs about uh, love, good ones and perverted ones, love, and we tend to write songs about 
drinking, substance abuse, and then we tend to write songs about things that pop into our mind when we're in love or drinking and or both. And you can get all sorts of stuff there. We also write songs about time. People love to write songs about time and country singers are the, are the most uh, sentimental when it comes to this and they sing about little kids and then before you know it they're graduating and oh where'd the time go and all that sort of stuff. We're fascinated with this concept of time. We're fascinated with the idea that we could somehow control it. We love movies like Back to the Future. We love movies like Interstellar and everything in between. These are time travel movies. And we watch these movies, the cheesy ones and the ones that win awards, and we say, if only we could control time in that way, wouldn't that be amazing? This is true of all ages of human beings. When I was a kid, one of my favorite cartoons was DuckTales. I loved DuckTales. And on DuckTales, you got the rich old Uncle Scrooge with all his money, and you got his little nephews running around causing problems. And in some of the episodes of DuckTales, they come across this little gun, and it freezes time. And they shoot the gun off, and everyone just freezes. And I remember being like four, five, six, thinking, I got to get one of those. That would be amazing. When I was a teenager, I watched a show called Saved by the Bell. And Saved by the Bell, in about one out of, I don't know, 10, 15 episodes, the main character, Zach Morris, stops what he's doing, looks at the camera and says, time out. And all the characters in the show have to just stop. You say, well, that's Saved by the Bell, stupid show. It's not a stupid show. And if you get on social media and you just scroll for about 10 minutes, you'll see people posting pictures of their babies, their kids, their grandkids, and they will say things like, be still my heart. I want it to stop right here. Or make time stand still. I just want to freeze this moment, whatever the little caption might be. But people have this, this understanding I just want to stop it. Just from, I just want to pause it and control it. And when you read this poem, and there's all of this repetition, time, 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 28 times time, you're reminded, we're reminded, that it doesn't stop. I can't stop it, and you can't stop it. Time just rolls on. You're not going to stop it. You're living under the sun. Your life is a mist. And it's a vapor. So there's a time for all of these things under heaven. Now let's just step back for a second and let's get our bearings in this passage. Okay, I want you to think with me about the structure of chapter 3. In verse 1, you have a thesis. Chapter 3, verse 1. The thesis is, for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Then in verse 2 to 8, you have a poem. And the poem is just exploring this, thinking about the totality of life and how time works and how we experience it. In verse 9, which we're about to come to, there's a question. And it's going to sound very similar to the question we read in chapter 1, verse 3. But then there's going to be an answer that sounds a lot different than what we read in chapter 1. So let's read this next section, Ecclesiastes 3, 9 
to 15. What gain has the worker from his toil? Remember what the question is in chapter 1, verse 3? What does man gain from all of his toil under the sun? This is a little bit different, right? The question here is, what gain has the worker from his toil? No mention of under the sun, but gain and toil show up. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We just sang that on repeat. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is, has already been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So, I told you week one that I think the translation of hebel, smoke, as vanity is overly pessimistic. It's adding interpretation to the translation of the world. I think it's too negative for the book as a whole. And I'm about to show you a quote. I do this with fear and trembling. Listen carefully. I'm about to show you a quote I disagree with from a book that I love. You know, you can do that when it's not the Bible. With the Bible... That's what you get. With any other book, including books I write, Corey writes, you can say, I like this, I don't like that. So I'm telling you, I love this book. I've quoted it approvingly. This is an example where I think a commentator is too negative about Ecclesiastes. This is David Gibson, and he's talking about verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? And he's trying to connect it back to chapter 1. He's trying to say it's the same question, and this is what he says. Notice how the preacher follows the poetry in verse 9. The poetry is 2 to 8, and verse 9 follows. This is the most powerful of sucker punches. There's a time for everything. Life is a lyrical arrangement of good and bad, relational complexity, and nuanced subtleties. I'm good with that. And at the end of it, you go in a box in the cold, hard ground. What have you gained? After living all the seasons of life. Nothing. You're dead. That's too much for me. If you want to take that commentary and slap it on chapter 1, I'm right there with you. That's the logic in chapter 1. That's the argument. I don't think that's the argument here. In the middle of chapter 3. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's asking a similar question. The preacher is. What gain... Do we have from our toil? But the poem above wasn't toil under the sun. It was under heaven. And here, there's no mention of under the sun yet. It's only what gain has the worker from his toil. So let's try to make sense of this. Notice the words, and we've been talking about this, gain and toil. Gain and toil. You're supposed to think about chapter 1, verse 3, but you're also supposed to notice that something's missing and that this question is slightly different. 
So how do we make sense of this question? There's a couple of things we need to know and a couple of things we need to do. Number one, we need to know that God makes everything beautiful in its time. God makes everything beautiful in its time. This is really freeing for you as a Christian. This is how you get free of that mindset that says something has changed in my life and God is either punishing me or rewarding me. How do you break free from that? You step back and you say, okay, there is a God in heaven and he's sovereign over all things and he makes all of life beautiful in its time. He knows what he's doing and he has a purpose. He is sovereign over my experience of time. This is one of the things Jesus was trying to say in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll put Matthew 10, 29, and 30 up. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Not one of them will die. There's a time for the sparrow to die. There's a time for that, and God knows it. And it won't happen apart from his sovereignty and his knowledge and his control. That's a freeing truth. It's why people wrote these words. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he, his eyes on the sparrow, and I know he watches over me. It's a comforting truth to know and to believe deep in your bones that God is sovereign over sparrows that fall out of the ground and over all the times that we just read about in chapter 3 and that God makes everything beautiful in its time. Secondly, we need to know that God has set eternity in man's heart. God has set eternity in man's heart. That's straight out of verse 11. He put eternity into man's heart. I don't think that's deniable whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. I think it's obvious when you just look at people as an honest observer and how they act and how they relate and what they do with their lives that there is some nagging, longing, something pulling at the core of who they are that believes there's got to be something else. Maybe I get to that something else through religion. Maybe I get to that something else through achievement. Through activism, maybe I get to that something else through drugs or altering my mental state. How do I get in touch with that something else? Something There's got to be something else. God has set that deep in man's heart. Eternity has been set into the heart of man. I think that's what Paul talks about in Romans 1. In Romans 1 and Romans 2, Paul's talking about how God has revealed himself to all people. And he says, people look at the creation, how big it is, how vast it is, how systematic and orderly it is, and they know that there's a creator. They suppress that knowledge. They reject it, but deep down in their core, they know it. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then he goes on, Paul does in Romans 1 and 2, and he talks about our conscience. And he says, there's something in us that just knows that there's some outside standard of right and wrong. And if there's an outside standard, somebody's got to have set that standard. God has set eternity into man's heart. Number three, be joyful. 
do good, and take pleasure. This is why I can't go with the Gibson quote I showed you a minute ago. There's nothing to gain. Because that's not where the text goes. What do we have to gain from all our toil? Well, one of the things he says is you should be joyful, you should do good, and you should take pleasure. This is God's gift to man. Verse 13, this is God's gift to you, that you be a joyful person, you take pleasure in life, God has given this gift to you. When you don't factor God into your thinking, your toil is just a burden. But when you understand that there is a God and that He's sovereign over everything and He's put you where you are, when you are, for a reason, you find joy and you find pleasure and you're free to do good. Number four, we need to know that God is not subject to time or change. This is verse 14. This is the big difference between us and God. Our experience of time is described up in the poem. A time for this, a time for this, a time for this. You can't stop it. You can't slow it down. It's coming. There's nothing you can do about it. Here's God's experience of time. Whatever God does endures forever. Whatever He does endures forever. What I do does not endure forever. What you do in your toil, it does not endure forever. But what God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people would fear before Him. That's the very next truth, the fifth truth. We are created to stand in awe of God. We're not created to be God. We're not created to critique God. We're not created to evaluate how God is doing and running the world, to correct Him, to inform Him, but to stand in awe of Him. So let me step back and think about how we experience all of this. One of the great joys for a couple of my kids is Legos. And my kids are now of the age where they don't like the little box that's like this big with eight pieces. That is no good. They want the 3,000-piece treehouse in the big giant box that costs like five paychecks to buy the thing. That's what they want. They want the big, huge project. And if you've ever done one of these big, huge, thousand-piece Lego projects, at some point you open the instruction books and you look at a page that looks like that. And there's a reason that the box says, you know what, this is for 16 plus. The reason is your five-year-old is going to look at step 95. That's 95 steps into the thing and say, no, this is not a treehouse. I don't know what this is, but it's not a treehouse. This is ridiculous. Why? I'm on step 95. I don't have a treehouse yet. But you've got to do that to lay a foundation. You've got to build this piece so you can add it on top later. And if you follow the instructions, when you get all the way to the end, you realize, oh, that's why we did that on step 95. Or you realize, oh, I had that brick in one spot over just too far, one dot in step 95. Now the whole thing won't work. One little thing was out of place. Listen, in your life, in your life, as you experience time, some things are going to feel out of place. And you're just going to say to yourself, this doesn't go here <laughs> in my life. I don't want this here. I don't want step 95. I want to skip to 107. 
I'm going to skip the next 10 steps. I don't want to do this. And there's going to be things that happen in your life where you feel like this is out of time. It's what you wanted, but it's too late or it's too early, and it's just not going to be quite right. But here's the thing about life. You don't have the whole Lego instruction book for your life. You don't even see the whole finished product clearly on the outside of what God's doing in your life. That's why we're called to be people of faith. It's because God is sovereign over time, and we most certainly are not. So it's okay if you don't understand what God is doing in your life at step 95, and if it feels out of place or if it feels out of time, if it doesn't feel quite right. What you're called to do is to trust that God is sovereign over time and to fear Him and to stand in awe of Him. So let me give you a quote from David Gibson. This one I like. I couldn't fit all this on your notes, so some of this is on your notes. It's all up on the screen. Plenty of my children's frustrations are because my wife and I see a bigger picture than they do. And we're often working towards goals they cannot really understand. That's why you can't have cupcakes for breakfast. Kids don't understand that. I like cupcakes. Why can't I have cupcakes? No, you can't have cupcakes. You've got to have eggs. You need the protein. You don't need 8,000 grams of sugar to start the day. You don't need that. They're frustrated. All grown-ups are like children when it comes to our own lives and God's ordering of them. Part of being wise in this world is learning to accept that we have only very limited access to the big picture. That's the takeaway from this middle section. We've dealt with the poem. We're dealing with 9 to 15. What gain has the worker from his toil? Well, it's not just you're dead and in a box. It's God has given a gift to you. He set eternity in your heart, and he wants you to find joy and pleasure in your toil, and he wants you to stand in awe of him. He doesn't want you to try to control everything in life, including time, but he wants you to trust that he's in control, that he's done things that will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it, and he's done it so that you stand in awe of him. Here's a a formula for spiritual growth, just very simple. How do I grow spiritually? Number one, I realize I'm not in control. And number two, I realize that God's sovereign over everything. Humble yourself and stand in awe of God. That's a pretty good formula for spiritual growth. Let's read the last section. For those of you who are just a little bit too cheery, we're about to help deal with that. This is Ecclesiastes after all. It's not Philippians 4.13. Ecclesiastes 3.16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time, that word's important in verse 17, time, that word time connects this last section with what we've just read. This goes together. There's a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. It's all smoke. It's all hebel. All go to one place. 
all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So, I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? All right, let's make sense of this last section. I think this is beautiful writing. And I think the preacher refuses to be optimistic or pessimistic. He refuses to fall into optimism or pessimism, and he threads the needle with realism. I don't think it's pessimistic. I think it feels pessimistic to us because we live in a Pollyanna culture. And we don't like to think about any of this stuff any of the time. So it feels negative. It feels like a downer. It feels pessimistic. But I don't think it is because of what we've read in the poem, what we've read in verse 9 to 15, and what you see in verse 22, the conclusion. It's not pessimistic. It is realistic. It is realistic. So let's talk about this last section. Wickedness and injustice are always going to be part of life under the sun. You should just bake that into your expectations. This side of eternity, as we experience time, there will be wickedness, there will be injustice, there will be corruption, there will be sin. Secondly, God has set a time to judge the righteous and the wicked. That's Ecclesiastes 3 verse 17. God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. There's a time set for judgment. Didn't we see that at the very end of Ecclesiastes on the very first week? We looked at Ecclesiastes 12. Everything's been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for God will bring every secret thing into judgment, whether good or evil. There's a time set for judgment. I also want you to understand, and I just want to hit pause right there in Ecclesiastes 3.17, that there is a time for salvation. There's a time for judgment, and there's a time for salvation. And Ecclesiastes is not the last book in the Bible. So let me just reference some of these verses that are on your notes, and I didn't put on this particular slide Galatians 4.4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to be born of a virgin. At the fullness of time, at the perfect appointed time. Mark 1.15, Jesus came preaching. What was the very first thing that we know Jesus preached? Repent, for the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time had come. What do you read in John 7.30? It says that they tried to kill Jesus, but Jesus snuck away and they weren't able to kill him. Why? It's because his hour had not yet come. It was not time for him to die. Matthew 26.18, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said, my time has come. Now the time has come. It's a time to be born. It's a time to preach. There's a time to escape the Jews who are trying to kill you. Then there's a time to die. And in Romans 5, 6, Paul says, at just the right time, just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 6. It happened at just the right time. Acts 1, 6. The disciples are ecstatic. Jesus has died and now he's alive. And they say, at this time, will you restore the kingdom? Is it the time? It wasn't the time. Acts 17, 31. Paul preaching in Athens and he said, God has appointed a day of judgment. There will be a day of judgment. There is a time for salvation and a time for judgment. We might fit that into our poem in chapter 3. In the fullness of time, at the right time, when his hour had come, Jesus died to save sinners. When you look at Ecclesiastes, if you come away from this book thinking there's a day of judgment coming, so I better be really good, so I pass the test, you miss the point of the Bible. You will fail that test. Jesus has passed it so that you don't have to die and you can live. David Gibson Knowing that God is outside of time, he sees it all, will in the end bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, stops me needing to be in control of everything that happens to me. Number three, God delaying judgment creates a period of testing. That's Ecclesiastes 3.18. God is testing the children of man that they may see that they are but beasts. God does not tempt people, but he most certainly tests people. Number four, death is the inevitable end of all human beings. This is where Ecclesiastes feels like home. Verse 19, 20, and 21. Let me just acknowledge, these verses, they're odd verses. This stuff about the beast, and you're like a beast, and you die, and the, who knows if you go up, you go down, all that sort of stuff. There's odd verses. The point of these verses is not to say that you don't have a soul that can go be with God. That's not the point of these verses. The point of these verses is that you are mortal and your life is a vapor and you're going to die and we're going to put you in the ground and you're going to go back to dust. You came from dust, you'll go back to dust. That's going to happen. And from a human perspective, this is where Ecclesiastes is a little bit dark. We do that with our dogs. We put them in the ground and we do that with each other. We put each other in the ground. And I know that's shocking to hear it put this way. You just think, man, I would never let this guy teach preschool down in the nursery. He is way too intense. I know it's intense, but partly it's intense because you live in a culture that just does this. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to think about it. And he's just being honest. Death is the inevitable end of all human beings. Lastly, our lot in life is working and rejoicing in our work. This is why it's not pessimistic. Verse 22. There is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. When that says that is your lot, that's not saying you just randomly ended up where you are doing what you're doing. That goes back to this middle section of chapter 3, all this stuff about God and his sovereignty and his power and his overtime and he's given gifts to men, and he's set eternity in our heart. He's put you where you are, when you are for a reason. That is your lot. It's from God. 
So we don't just throw our hands up and say, it's all vanity, it's all vanity. When we factor God into the equation and we recognize His sovereignty, we work and we rejoice in our work. Phil Riken says this, one of the best ways to avoid life's vanity is by knowing what to do with our time. The way we spend our time is the way we spend our lives. Let's just end with a reading from Ephesians. I didn't put this on your notes, but I think Ephesians chapter 5 is a good way to end. Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Father, tonight we're thankful. We're thankful that we can talk to you, the one who created everything, the one who created time, the one who is sovereign over time, the one who has acted from the beginning and nothing can change your plans or your purposes, the one who has given us our lot in life. It's no coincidence, it's no random chance that we are where we are, when we are. Lord, every detail of our lives, down to the sparrow that falls to the ground, is under your sovereignty. God, and that changes the way that we think about our short, brief lives on this earth. Rather than make us throw our hands up in despair and fear and anxiety and anger and rage, it gives us peace and contentment and joy. Because we trust you, even when we don't understand what's happening in our lives, why things are going the way they're going in our lives, what it is you're doing in our lives. We don't have to understand any of that, but we trust you. We rest in your sovereignty. Father, I pray for these people in this room, for the changes that they will experience in their life over the next year. Lord, we know that that will happen. And as we walk through those experiences of change, we pray that we would be people who stand in awe of you. Not who question you, not who doubt you, not who try to correct you or advise you, but we simply stand in awe of you and we recognize your sovereignty over all things. Lord, we want to end doing that tonight. We just want to sing about your greatness and your glory and your wonder. So be honored as we sing. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.